The next chapter with Prim's Ripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Six Studios. This week's guest is former professional track and field athlete, the 2012 Olympic bronze medalist in the 100 meter hurdles, a two time All American at Hampton University, also a motivational speaker, a wife, a mother of two, and a soon to be author, Kelly Wells Brinkley. Now, today, Kelly is also the global sports marketing manager for Saucony at Wolverine Worldwide, Inc. And as a first woman and first woman of color to hold that position at her company, she is undoubtedly paving the way for many. The thing that stands out to me about Kelly's journey is not just what she accomplished, but the obstacles or the hurdles, pun intended, she had to overcome throughout her journey. And there were so many, so many. Her parents getting divorced when she was around eight or nine years old, watching her father leave and move out of the house, watching her mother and two siblings be physically and emotionally abused by her mother's boyfriend and eventual fiance, being sexually molested by her mother's fiance, Rick, for years, and then being raped by him at 15 years young. And then roughly a month and a half later, after that incident, having to bury her mother and her mother's fiance, Kelly's perpetrator, after the two died in a car crash because Rick was driving drunk. And then on the track, suffering injuries, including tearing her hamstring at the 2008 U.S. Olympic trials and hearing from doctors that she may never run again. The thing I admittedly struggled with in doing this interview with Kelly was just really trying to figure out which metaphorical hurdle was most impactful in her development as an athlete and also as a person. And I hope the conversation doesn't jump around too much. And I also hope that it didn't come off as if I was just glossing over some of the things that she's experienced. But when you only have an hour with a person, especially someone who's been through all the things that she's been through, it can feel really rushed. So my hope is that it didn't come off that way. And after listening back to my interview with Kelly, I think what I realized is that a person should not and never be defined by any one event or any one experience and that they should be judged by their entire body of work, including how they respond to these events. In other words, Kelly should not be judged or thought of solely for her athletic achievements or her Olympic status or her past traumas or her gender or her race or any of the above. And what she should be defined by is her resiliency and her ability to overcome all these hurdles. And as you'll hear during our conversation, it's a really good thing. She loves challenges and enjoys being a problem solver because I think those two traits are the reason why she was able to overcome so much in her life. I really hope you enjoyed this deep dive with her because she has one heck of a story. So without further ado, here's Kelly. It is so nice to connect with you. We met uh, a couple times before 
you, know, you work with my husband at Wolverine Woolwright, but it's so nice to finally be sitting here and I'm, I'm just excited to hear your story. I am overjoyed to be here. So I've kept up with your podcast and you've had some like <laughs> hitters on here. So I'm excited to be like housed in that same company. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I feel like there's so many different directions that we could take this conversation. And, you know, last time you and I spoke, you, know, you, you kind of shed some light on some articles. I watched the E60 ESPN piece at least the Salters did an amazing job. I believe that was in 2012, I think it was. And you've been on a gazillion podcasts and everything. So I think my opening question is, what is the one aspect about your story that people people oftentimes don't ask about or forget to ask about? Um, I think people forget to ask about the journey of like how I got out of rough places mentally and physically. I think people just see like what happened and then, oh, everything's great. Um, so I think, cause to me, when I share it, I often talk about the journey because the journey, like that's where the beauty is, not the end result where I got a medal or I have a great job or a great family, um, the journey, because like, that's the hardest part and the best part all at the same time. I love that you said that. And thank you for saying that because there is, a, I think, you know, having been in media now for 20 something years and then leaving it and then re-engaging with it, I kind of noticed that there's just like this, we like to focus on the highlights and not necessarily the lowlights, which, you know, with this show, as you've heard, is like such an important aspect of everyone's journey because we all experience lowlights. If anything, we experience more lowlights than we do highlights. And that I think that was the one takeaway that I, when I was listening to all these interviews and all the stories, is that everybody oftentimes focus on the trauma that you experience at 15, your background, your mother's death, and then it skips over to your um, your success at the 2012 games. And then it's, that's just kind of like it. Yeah. And that, that's how I process it, but I don't know if I'm processing it differently. Yeah. I think that's like it, there's like glimpses. So I like, I equate people's lives to like their Instagram feed. Like, you know, people <laughs> only show like the great stuff, you know, you show when your kids like on the first day of school and looks great. Not when they're having a conniption in the middle of Costco. <laughs> so, you know, those are the things that like, I really do try to share about myself. Like, of course I have lots of great around me, but like it took a lot to get here and these are my steps. And so to not skip over like the stuff that you have to do get really healthy and be in a good place. Is there any particular moment or period or event that comes to mind in terms of things that were really important to this, these low lights that you think is important to share? Um, I think like I look back and I kind of laugh now, but it's not funny, but like, of like the way that I processed my mom's death or like how I thought that I processed it. And like, just, mm. I really just like put it in a box, put it way down deep and then just like kept going because what else do you do with life except keep going? Um, so like learning like that, I processed it like much later in life and how it's hit me, especially like now that I am a mom, like, first of all, no one tells you that like when you have babies, it brings out like these emotions that you never even knew you had, like you cry at everything, everything affects you. Um, so I think just like going through this journey has really helped me like repair parts of me that I had kind of like shut away. 
Wow. That is so fascinating. And I can definitely empathize and understand because I've had that experience. They often say that when you become a parent, the reason why it's so emotionally intense is because it does, it brings up memories of your own experience as a child. And then now that you're stepping into the role, you're probably reflecting on your mother and your family and all the things that you experience. So as you've assumed that role as wife and mother, is there a recent theme that that's emerged where you're just like, wow, I can't believe this happened or I can't believe they let this get away or whatever. Um, so I have a, <laughs> I have a bonus son. He's 17. So he's my son. He's not my bonus son. He's my son. He's 17. And looking back on like certain things that he tries to like get over on me, I'm like, bro. And then thinking back that like, oh, I was that same kid trying to get stuff over like on my mom. It just makes, that always makes me laugh. Cause I'm like, I'm way smarter than you. Come on. Um, but there's certain things that like my mom did with us. So like traditions are really big. So getting to build those traditions with my now own family is something that feels so good, but it's also really painful at times because like, I'm like, dang, like if she was here, she would be doing this. Or I have a six-year-old and having to explain to him like why he only has one grandma, like that Mm. really, really like it punched me in the stomach because I remember the day that he asked me, like it just turned the corner. I'm like, Hmm. well, where's your mom, mom? And then like having to talk to him about it, um, like was like something that like I knew was coming, but I hadn't prepared myself for, or was I ready for at that moment? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. You know, the, the process of grief coming at it from a, uh, a budding clinician and psychologist, I've learned that grieving is such a complex process. And it's interesting to hear that some counselors like don't even really, uh, they kind of stay away from it because it's kind of this ongoing and never ending situation. Um, and, and for everybody, the process is different. So I'm curious about not only the grieving process, but how your relationship and your memories of your mother have changed and evolved over time as you've gotten older and assume multiple roles, including wife and mother. Yeah. I appreciate her for a lot of things that she did try to instill in me or give me because like, I'm a mom now. And I realize, like when certain things that I thought were stupid or like, why would she limit me from this? Now I completely see why, like when we watch the news every day, I refuse to be raising two black men that will be on that news in a, you know, a negative light. So I'm always like looking and thinking about things of like what could happen, um, even down to like, you know, today and I live in the state of Texas, you know, two hours and 15 minutes away from where a mass shooting, a tragedy happens. And I've got to cart a six-year-old to kindergarten. And, you know, so first my heart goes out to those parents and all that are affected because I literally could not imagine like that pain at all. So like simple things is like sending our kids to school or what activities they're going to be in or how hard you push them academically. Um, or a lot of things that like were instilled in me. And so I get to pass that on, you know, to my kids, uh, which feels like amazing. And I, I feel like a superhero a lot. Cause I'm like, you know, this is like my one person, my two people could change the trajectory of the world if it's done right. So yeah, yeah, really good. 
you feel like a superhero and you should because you are a superhero in many ways. Yeah. yeah and, and, and from an athletic standpoint, a personal standpoint, and also a professional standpoint too, in your new and evolving role as a global sports marketing manager for Saucony, which we're going to, uh, we're going to touch on. And I'm hoping to touch on so many different areas in this very short window, but yeah. you know, I, I was kind of, as I was doing my research, I was like, gosh, you know, Kelly's got so many different roles from Olympic athlete being one of the fastest human beings on this planet, motivational speaker, blogger, mother, wife, rape survivor, advocate of mental health, sports marketing manager, uh, wedding officiant. Is that like a thing now? (laughs) That was pretty cool. That's awesome. I could see you being excellent at that. But is there any identity that you really identify with and other identities that you kind of maybe not ignore, but shove to the side now at this point in life? Um, so I have a really hard time. I work in a running world. I work around athletes with athletes. Um, and I don't know whenever someone's like, oh yeah, Kelly's an Olympic medalist, even though it's like right here, I'm always kind of like, um, but I think in a professional setting, um, I do that because I want to be taken seriously. Um, Mm -hmm. and not just that, oh, Kelly has this role in sports marketing because she knows like she was an athlete and that's it. Um, so like working on like, you know, flexing my business acumen. So like whenever the Olympic medalist stuff comes up, even though literally like in all of my zoom meetings, it's right here. I'm still kind of like, um, because I know that, you know, people think that athletes aren't serious about, you know, working or academia and things like that. Um, so that's something that like, I'm always like, but like, it is, I'm not ashamed of it because it was just my path to getting where it like where I am now. Um, so that's kind of something that I just realized, like right mm. this moment, like a little bit of epiphany. Um, and then, I mean, I kind of lean into all of who I am. Um, I wear different hats at different times, so it just depends. Um, but like people ask me all the time, like, how do you have time for things? And I don't know. I really don't know. I keep a really good calendar. Like there's multiple calendars. My husband is included in everything. I tag him on everything so he can, you know, cause we've got moving parts. Um, so I just embrace all of who I am because I think like want, like being like a one sided person, you know, I feel like that's kind of boring. Like I could never just settle into one thing. Mm-hmm. I've got to shoot all over the place. It's boring. And it's also uh, unrealistic. You know, we, we have all these different sides of us and we should embrace that. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a, the, one of the missions of the show is to show the different side, the humanistic side of athletes and not having to just sit in this box. But going back to your comment about really having to, to do the delicate bit balance of when to broadcast and lean into your athletic accomplishments and also when to dial it back. I do, I really do recognize that because I think maybe there's that, there may be from the, I don't know if it's like the non-sports fan or maybe in the professional setting where people might make assumptions about you like, oh, she just got this job or she's in this role because she's an Olympic athlete. And what has she done really to get to this point? And I don't want to make assumptions, but is that part of like the narrative or thinking? Absolutely. Um, like, oh, she's just friends with someone or someone owed someone a favor or just be like, there's so many things that like, I think all the time. Um, but that part, it plays into that like imposter syndrome that I'm always like batting to the back of my head. Um, just because I know that 
my path was just different to get where, you know, I am. And I just have to remind myself that all the time of like, I've got so many applicable skills that like other people that had, you know, a conventional nine to five to get where they are. Um, like how, like how it's just different, but it's very much like the same skills and we're both good at what we're good at. Well, I'm really excited. I think coming into this interview, I think my main focus was really wanting to focus on this chapter of your life, because I think so many people have heard about your first several chapters. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to shed light on this this chapter that you're in right now. And I know the last time that we spoke, you mentioned like some of your areas of, of growth are finding your voice in your vocation and also not sucking your creativity. But before we get to that, for those that haven't heard your story or would like to re-listen to it or rehear it, where did where did sports enter your life? Let's start from the beginning. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, <laughs> from a very early age, like I don't remember anything other than like sports um, being something that was like, I mean, a stronghold to my household. Both of my parents were runners and my mom was a dancer. Um, my si- I have an older sister. She's a runner, younger brother, runner. So like we all did sports, um, but track was kind of like what was like our like our main point in the house. So your family is not slow. Yeah, like, no. like it's, <laughs> it's weird. So my older sister does ultra marathons. My younger brother oh. does like marathons and triathlons. So I'm the only sprinter of the whole family. It's very strange. Wow. So you got some of the fast twitch muscles and they're more yeah. just like that, uh, the, the endurance type runners. That's really interesting. Thank God. Because I don't, <laughs> like, I don't know if I have the, the means to make it through two hours and some change of running or two days for my sister. That's great. So the, the personality seemed to match up. I always wonder about the nature versus nurture. And I've often kind of, you know, when I was doing some of these interviews, I oftentimes ask athlete, did you choose your sport or did the sport choose you? And you've often mentioned how hurdling essentially chose you. Could you talk a little bit more about why you feel that way? Yeah. Like when you're young and track, nobody wants to go do the hurdles. Like that's not a thing. No one is like pining to do them. And so I've always kind of been like the outlier, kind of the rebel. And so everybody wanted to be sprinters, like the hundred and the 200 that's flashy and fun. So of course I did those. And I was like, Hey, can I try those? And one day my coach was like, sure. So then we did them and he was like, Hmm, all right, let's see this again. So I just tried it. And then I was just like good at it and just kept going, going and got better and better. And then I liked those much more than sprinting um, because I loved the challenge of like what the hurdles provided. And like, it never, ever is the same, even though the hurdles are in the same spot, they're the same height. It were always something that you had to battle against. And I felt like I was already really good at like overcoming things and figuring it out. So the hurdles just stuck. Fascinating how I had never really heard of it explained that way, where even though the hurdles are at the same place from an outsider's view, you would just think it's like, okay, it's the same thing. And you do, you really have to, in my very short time, like in my tennis training, we had a track coach who was our strength and conditioning coach. And he was like really trying to help us work on our mechanics of running and all that other stuff. And it was an ugly scene, but I, I also <laughs> recognize, <laughs> I, you know, tennis is a little different. There's a lot of like little footsteps and stuff. But what I did recognize is that like, man, the timing has to be really important. And if you're just off, um, so what was it about it that you enjoyed 
And how did that match up with your personality in terms of like, you kind of like the challenge? Have you always been that way? Unfortunately, yes. Like sometimes I create challenges just to overcome them. It's very strange. Um, but um, I've always just kind of had like this rebellious nature about myself, even as an adult. Um, and I feel like the hurdles just provides that of like, we're conventional sprinters, but we're not. You have to like see things from different angles. There's different ways that you have to judge a hurdle. So I feel like it was just like so much of my personality and things that I liked, like wrapped up into like an event on the track. So it just made it even better. Do you consider yourself a problem solver? All the time. I oh, love okay. Yes. My friends call me, my coworkers call me. I literally love problems and I love to solve them. <laughs> so, and what, how old were you when you first made this realization? Like you enjoy problems. Did you always like puzzles? No, or- word problems. Word problems and math are like okay. my thing. So I love like reading the words, putting together the clues, kind of putting the beginning that might go with the end and you got to figure it out. Um, so like those, I love like murder mysteries. I love like clues and kind of like piecing together what the story is going to be. Really, really interesting. And so I suppose that that skill or that natural inclination to like dive into problems probably came in handy as you went through your childhood. So before your event in 15, um, was there any sort of traumatic, other traumatic or stressful event that you could think of uh, where these problem solving abilities really stood out? Um, yeah, well, for sure. Like my parents had a tumultuous relationship, um, as well. So like navigating that and learning how to navigate my parents' emotions or something that like I learned at a very early age, um, which was a good thing and a bad thing because it also taught me how to shrink in stressful situations. And that's not something that like I love as an adult, but I do have that instinct to like, if my husband and I are, are, are going at it and, or something at work, you know, I'm going at it. Like my first inclination is to be like, Oh no, shrink, like be, be dis or like disappear. But, uh, fighting against that, um, feeling is something that like I've had to overcome as well. So I've learned some like good things of like, you know, how to diffuse situations, but also like how to disappear in high stress situations. Isn't like how I want to show up or how I'd like my kids to show up as well. Wow. And so this kind of disappearing effect or, or being a chameleon, if you will, and having knowing when to shrink, when to be heard, when to be silenced, when to kind of step away. I find it interesting that like you kind of experienced that in your first household with your parents as they were going through the divorce. And it seems like that was also seemingly the case in the second household when with your mother and as you all moved in with her fiance who ended up, uh, Rick, who ended up raping you. Um, yeah, her picker was a little off. <laughs> Actually, it was a lot off. Um, but then I think that that goes back to like childhood and, you know, traumas that she may have experienced that I'm not familiar with. Um, but like, I know that there are like your picker gets off with, you know, who you're around. Um, so yes, there was like a, a cycle of things that I also fought against when I was choosing a potential maid or boyfriends. Um, mm-hmm. like, but I think also that made me really rebellious towards um, any kind of man that tried to tell me to do anything. 
Um, and I've had men coaches like my whole life. So a little tumultuous there. Um, but we made it through, but like, definitely it skewed how I viewed people because of the people that I grew up around. Mm. And so with the people that you grew up around as you were, you know, as your parents divorced and then you moved in, your mom, uh, had this fiance and, mm-hmm. and your brother and you and your sister moved into the home. Can you just t- take us through that process of like how everything unfolded? Yeah. At first it was like really great. Right. Like, because Um, he was into the same kind of stuff that I was in and my dad kind of wasn't. So, you know, Rick would go play basketball with me or, you know, football or, you know, he would take me to the track and run. Um, but I remember shortly after that things went crazy just because his, I don't know what triggered him to, you know, change like that, but it was just so much that happened overnight. He became like super angry or out loud angry. Um, He was abusive towards my mother, abusive towards my siblings. Um, So that just kind of, you know, it was kind of like a wake up call, like, whoa, like someone can pretend like this for so long. Like, wow, that's crazy. Um, So that was rough. So as you're living in this new housing situation, this just new environment, Mm -hmm. you were seeing and experiencing a lot. So you're watching your mom, it sounds like, be physically abused. Your mm-hmm. siblings also physically abused. Yep. And it sounds like he was uh, also abusing substances, alcohol and, and drugs. So there was just a lot of general abuse in the house. Um, I tell people all the time, like at a young age, I saw things that like no child should see. Um, so that's why I work so hard as a parent to make sure that like they don't experience those things, but it was very chaotic. And I remember just being loud all the time with him, like yelling and screaming. Um, So it just was something that like a child should never go through ever. I'm so sorry to hear that. That must be, that must've been so tough. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a better word or you can find a word to talk about that. And then, so after you move in and you're saying all of this, how long before um, you had that incident with him? Oh, it was a while. Um, so we moved in when I was in elementary school already. So then I had to like change schools because she wanted to, you know, go live there. So we were living there and I remember it was Super Bowl Sunday. I don't remember the year, um, but Super Bowl Sunday. He and my mom get into an argument, you know, they had been hanging out, having beers, whatever. So he had been drinking like all day for the Super Bowl. And it was in Richmond, Virginia. And I remember there was a snowstorm, like an ice storm. So he takes her car, goes and drives and he drives across this bridge that's right close to like where we were living at the time. And he ends up like spinning out of control, hits a car head on and kills a person um, at that point. So he didn't die right then. He went to the hospital and then passed away later on. So then Rick was arrested for involuntary manslaughter. And so he was sentenced to five years with four and a half suspended. So he only had to do six months in jail for taking someone's life. Literally crazy. I don't know how that worked out. Cause like I was, you know, very small at that point. So then um, they, he goes to jail. We move out of his home. And so they had broken up for a little while. But then I definitely remember like being taken to jail to visit him. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm like, mom, what? (laughs) 
Um, but that definitely did happen. Took him to jail or took us to jail to visit him. Once he got out, they got back together. And then right after he got out, that's when like he was just never the same. I never mm-hmm. saw that like happiness from him or whatever. He had this like huge scar on his face from where he went through the windshield as well. And uh, then I know that's when the heavy drugs picked up because he was on prescription meds and then obviously those run out. And so just like anybody in society, we know what happens with prescription pain pills. Um, So then he went down like a really dark path after that. So I would say from moving time to like when it got like really crazy. Four years, three years of like the touching. Wow. Three or four years. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's that's a really long time. And I know you, you had mentioned in previous interviews that it was the frequency of it was as many as three or four times during a week. Oh, for sure. Um, he always found a reason to like be near me, be on me, be around me. Um, he took a much more int- like a bigger interest in me than like my brother or my older sister. Um, mm-hmm. So it was strange. It is really strange. And, you know, and, and if, if this is a question that you are uncomfortable answering, feel free to say so, but have you, have you thought about, or in the past, even just like, why me? Like what what happened? Yeah. All Mm -hmm. the time. Why me? Um, like, or like what made him have such an interest in me? Um, but I've kind of worked past like, in, ther- in therapy of like not getting, like not getting the sorry or not getting the explanation that I feel I've deserved. Like sometimes you're just not going to get that. So I just have like accepted that like it was me and then why me? Maybe so I can help someone else. Yeah. Yeah. That's really empowering. Thank you for sharing that because, and I, I wanted to ask that question because, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that have experienced the things that you have experienced and they are probably asking, and I know and I've heard that they do ask those questions. Yeah. So as you're going through all of this, where does sport and where does running and the track come into play in terms of just like coping and that being your safe haven? I mean, it was my only haven. Um, I mean, I like school. I got great grades, but like it didn't provide an outlet for me. And so track was an outlet. And so then it also provided like that mental ad, like outlet, but then also like the physical one. I've had to be gone for practices, for track meets. So like anything that I could do to be out of the house, like I did. And so track provided like a lot of that. Then I did like show choir and I was in a bunch of groups and stuff like that um, because being around people felt really great to me. But then also I didn't have to be home. But track, mm-hmm. track was it, like head and shoulders above anything else. And so around the time uh, you were 13 years old, you had mentioned that this is like the time where you really started to excel. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you realize like, "Uh, I'm like really good at this and I could really make something of this? Um, I knew it from like early on. Um, Like even when I was like younger and I was running in the neighborhood and I would race the boys and I would like beat all of them. I mean, kill them. And of course I had to talk all the trash in the world because It's also part of my personality. Um, But I knew from like then of like, huh, I'm good. And then my mom put me in track and then I was just really good. And I made it to nationals my first year running and like not knowing what I was doing, just running. Um, So I knew from an early age that I would be like very successful at track, but not as successful as I am or was. Like I know. Interesting. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So here, so here's sport and and running and hurling, and it becomes just like the place where you probably feel so you you feel in control. Um, you get to express yourself. You get to have that sense of community. And it's so funny that you mentioned like having this sense of control, which I know you've mentioned in other interviews and other athletes have talked about that too. I was actually interviewing uh, the form- former number one overall pick, Shamiqua Holdsclaw. And she mentioned like- Me? Sass- you you yes, lie. My girl. <laughs> Isn't she awesome? She's, uh, I love her. I love her so much. And like, she- talks about basketball and growing up in Queens and coming from a different difficult background and home environment where it was like basketball she says basketball was my thing it was my thing to control and all this other stuff and I'm wondering if if you connect with the way she describes basketball like having that sense of control absolutely but I don't even know if it was control because yes I do like I love that aspect of it but I think it was just like it was a safe haven for me because I was so good at it and I I was always so loved in it. So like it provided, it was like a a hug all the time. Um, And it Hmm. put me in like a place of like warm, good feelings, like stuff that I should have felt like in a home environment. I felt it on the track. The warm hug. And where did you, how did you experience that in the sense of getting that warm hug from track? Was it the people or was it that sense of like accomplishment? I think it was all of it. Um, And then it was like, of course, the people, like everyone liked me because I was good at track. But then it was also, I could, I could see myself getting better at something. So there's a measurable difference. Last week I ran this, this week I ran this. So it gave me like something like hope. Like, and I know that this is my end goal. So how do we get from A to B to Z? Um, When I never felt like there was going to be a Z at home, I felt like it was always going to be chaos. So this was the one place that like I could figure out the path to like no chaos because I I wanted to win and this is what it takes to win. Hmm. And the sense of chaos really seemed to just kind of come to a head around the time you were 15. Um, and talk just a little bit about like the turn of events, because I mean, it just seemed everything's including your grandmother's passing. It, I mean, it just seemed like that year, just so many things was happening. Yep. In 1999, we were living at Rick's house. Um, things were status quo of how they were going to be. And I remember, um, my mom called me and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. She's like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you that your grandma just passed away and she had been in the hospital and she was older because I mean, so my grandmother had 12 kids. I mean, my oldest aunt and uncle could also be like my grandparents. Like that's, you know, like that's how it is. Um, And so, you know, it was just, it was really traumatic for our whole family because she was the glue that kind of held all of the pieces together. That's where we did Christmases and Thanksgiving, like everything just happened at her house. And so like after she passed away, it was like everybody kind of like split off and stuff spun out of, you know, the orbit of how it usually was. And uh, so then things got really rough between me and Rick. We were either always arguing um, or the touching was happening. And then one night he finally like raped me because he hadn't raped me up until then. There was just lots of other things that happened. And I remember like I told my mom and I don't remember her being upset. And I say that like, I just don't remember it. I don't remember 
her having much of a reaction to anything. And so that's when I knew like, okay, Kelly, you got to get yourself out of this situation. So I talked to my dad, but I never told my dad what happened um, because he and I weren't close either. But I figured that was like the lesser of the two evils. Like he might get angry a lot, but he's not going to sexually molest me. So that's way better to me. Um, So I remember I talked to him and I told him, like, I got to get out of there. I hate living there. So he had just bought a condo kind of near where my mom was living in the same school district. And so um, I just asked him, could I move in? Because it was a two bedroom condo. And he was like, "Okay, totally fine. So then I worked on my mom and I told her and I told her, like, it's like, I hate it here. And she begrudgingly let me go. I don't even remember, like, how it happened or how the the yes happened um but i remember just her being really upset that i wanted to move in with my dad and i didn't want to leave my brother there but i knew that i couldn't stay there either so we moved in and i remember the day that we were moving my uh my mom's fiance wouldn't let my dad come into the house to like move the furniture like my bed and stuff to the truck to to put it somewhere. So then he made us like struggle to move it out, to put it on the front lawn, to have my dad move it. Like so dumb, like stuff like that of like, now that I'm a parent and I have to co-parent with people, like stuff like that isn't even necessary at all. So it couldn't have been a month, maybe two months. I honestly can't remember, but not a long time. And I remember I would always call her and call her and call her because I was so worried about her. And the one day that I called her, it was Mother's Day. And Rick answered the phone and he wouldn't let me talk to her. And so then um, I finally talked to her and I was like, hey, if you guys are going to be out riding around, put your seatbelt on. Um, and she was like, what? Like, what? And it didn't like register to her. It didn't register to me either. Mm-hmm. And then that was the same day that she passed away from not wearing a seatbelt in the car. So that was just wow really strange. And then the, where the accident happened from my dad's house, it's a stone's throw. Like I walk by there. Um, or if I'm driving, I have to drive past it to get to anywhere that I'm going, if I'm going to visit my dad. And, uh, I was coming home that night and I saw the actual accident and I didn't know that it was her. So that's what was really like, I mean, it was crazy about the entire situation, um, that, like, I don't, I don't know. It was just very crazy of like how all of that kind of came together. Yeah. I, and you just happened to that day mentioned to her mm-hmm. where your seatbelt. Like you- yeah. Stuff like that happens to me all the time though, of me telling people that like, be careful for this or something's going to happen. My friends swear that I'm psychic. And I don't, I don't know about that, but like, I definitely am in tune with certain things. Wow. And because if you are so in tuned with so many things, I'm curious if you feel that much more because you're so in tuned, psychic, maybe spiritual, whatever (laughs) words you want to fill in the blank, but because you're so in tune with what's going on, I guess it makes me wonder and question if you felt that much more, especially with everything that was going on, because it seems like your house your home, your grandmother, your mother being raped, having to move houses, like just so much instability and everything was changing. And did you, do you think that you just felt so much more 
not that, I mean, I, I would imagine that anybody would feel anything that, that you went through. I feel like I felt more, which made me not feel more. Like I have this knack of like, if someone tells me something traumatic, like I can immediately shut it off. Um, and it's very unhealthy because you end up processing that at some point. Um, so I, and like, so I remember when my mom passed, like being really upset, but not as upset as like I should have been, but going through therapy, I realized what was happening like during that time. Um, so yes, I feel a lot and then nothing all at the same time. It's very, it's a very weird combination. Hmm. Do you think that's because of, of your childhood and, you know, maybe stemming from your parents' divorce and knowing how to shrink and get quiet and learning how to yeah, quiet certain a, parts? Yes. It's the avoidance. Like <laughs> I avoid this. And I'm like, oh, that's painful. Mm-mm. Um, so it like, if it's painful is to the left, I'm headed to the right. So I have to like be very intentional. I'm still intentional about it these days of like processing the feel, not just being like, oh my gosh, that makes me upset or that, that scares me. Let me shy away from it. Um, mm. Like actually being in the moment and like feeling things. So I don't have to deal with stuff 25 years later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, if we avoid and push away those feelings, it's always going to come back always. eventually. It will always. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. So your the week that your mother passes, mm-hmm. you're back on the track, like just hours later and, and you have one heck of a performance. So talk about like what, what happened that whole week. Um, I don't remember a lot of it. Looking back on it, there are so many black spots uh, in that time. I remember hearing the news and it was on a Sunday morning. I went to school the next day, like when it happened, like where were the adults? Like, (laughs) as if this happened to anyone around me, I'd be like, what, like, why, why is your kid at school? They're no good at school. But I just felt like I had to like keep going. Um, So I remember I went to school And then I knew that we had the district track meet and my team was very much dependent upon me. So then we moved. So then I just went to the track meet and ran and did really well. And I just remember being feeling like out of body the whole time. Um, And I remember people, I knew people knew what happened because people were like either whispering or talking about it or, you know, people would come up to try to console me. And I almost felt like it was someone else's story. Like, what? what's happening? I'm at a track meet. Like what? Mm. Um, so I just remember being on autopilot for that whole week, if not more. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine that your sister was entirely just in shock and yeah. just trying to process everything. Mm-hmm. And so then, and so that week you go to the high school district championships, you, you, uh, was it, you break four, four meet records and you win six events and you lead the team to first place. And then, uh, the story is, is written from that point forward. (laughs) I look back on those times and like, then I look at my Olympic medal, I'm like, I must be the luckiest person on the planet or I'm just really good at planning um, because there are so many people that, you know, either were in my position and they just didn't make it that far. But I guess that's kind of like a testimony of like life of like creating great circumstances out of a crap one. Yeah. Creating, 
fantastic and better circumstances out of a crap one. And I don't mean to like gloss over, you know, all the other accomplishments that you, that you achieved, you know, but it was, I mean, it's amazing that week. And then you go to Hampton university athletic scholarship, two-time all American. And then also what you experienced with your injury in 2008, overcoming that then four years later, getting the bronze medal. I mean, it's just like one thing after another and you having to like recreate your circumstances. So I wonder if, you know, tying it back to what you, our last conversation, you said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find my, well, what did you say? I'm trying to find my voice or not second guessing my creativity. But the interesting thing about it is that you're a problem solver and you love puzzles and you have great creativity, especially when it comes to like solving problems in your life. Do you feel that way? I do, but I feel like I let, especially once I started this role, cause this isn't my first job by far. Um, this is the first time that the imposter syndrome really snuck up on me and like caught me off guard. Like, oh my gosh, you're about to go work with all of these people that have worked at all these shoe companies and they're heavy hitters. Like you got to come in swinging and like putting a lot of pressure on myself where I've never done that anywhere else. Like I always try to show up authentically and like be like, you know what? I'll make this place better or I'll figure out some things. Um, and that. I just like, I don't know why this, well, I do know why this job definitely like came at me different, but, um, it was a lot of the imposter syndrome of like, I got to make sure I'm really creative and I'm really this. And I'm really that instead of just being how I am now, like you're more than enough. Like they, mm-hmm. they came to find you girl. Like you didn't look for these people. Like this company needs you. So just relax and be yourself. So why do you think it is that you're experiencing the imposter syndrome much heavier in this role than in previous years? Um, Because it's like a really big deal. So there has never been a woman that has done my job at all for any shoe company um, in, in the running space. So the fact that like I am the decision maker at the company, I, you know, give the contracts, I cut people from contracts. I am showing up. I'm the face, the ambassador of the business when it comes to all things running, you know, that is a really big deal. And the sport has given me so much and gave me a life that like, I never thought that I could have. I visited countries that I didn't even know existed, you know, and I, you know, came from a, like not a small town, but like small beginnings. And I want to make sure that I show up the same way for people that I can give that same opportunity to as well. So it felt like a lot of pressure of like, okay, you got to get this right because, you know, they're looking at you. All the other shoe companies are looking at you. There's, you know, there hasn't been a black person that has done this. So I felt like I was like the representation of so many people that like I let the, I let it get, you know, too big. And I started to get overwhelmed and I had to take a really big step back. Thanks to Ben. And like, you know, put me like, Hey, this is just a job. You're doing great. Relax. Like, don't like, you don't have to try to do so much. Like you're doing way more than you think you are. So really feeling the expectations and pressure of, not only giving back to the sport that gave you so much, but holding this responsibility as a woman, the first woman in this position, a woman of color 
in this position. Like the way you described it makes me think about the experiences of kind of like Tiger Woods and also Naomi Osaka, where their, their paths, these Naomi at least speaks so much about her responsibility as a woman of color mm-hmm. and, you know, a Japanese, Haitian, American, and to put all this pressure, and at least for Tiger Woods, he hasn't necessarily held that mantle and, um, and that torch, but, you know, his father was like, you're going to be the next Gandhi and, you know, the first Thai and, and black man and, and all this other stuff. So to have that weight from a gender perspective, from a race perspective, just I can understand like why it would feel like a lot. It it was tremendous pressure, but like also like I just I'm already a perfectionist. Like I want to do things right from the beginning and just wanting to, you know, show up right for um, people. Because like one of the things that we talk about at Saucony is like access for all. But like now they have a representative that is the all. And how can I help like move that marker to where a really good running shoe can be obtained by, you know, a single mom who may be, you know, not where she wants to be, but her kids want to run track. Like, how can I help move that forward? Because those are, you know, things that I'm faced with in day-to-day making decisions that I do make. What athletic skills that you acquired over the course of your career, what helps you? I've got two questions here, but like what, what skills from your athletic experience are helping you now in the role that you're in? Um, Being able to pivot on a moment. Like if we change direction with something, I'm fine with it. Um, So like, and then also being really comfortable with the unknown um, because there's lots of stuff in business that is unknown. We get these great numbers from awesome people that are a forecast, but we don't know what it's really going to be. So being able to pivot and just being, you know, really okay with like the unknown what's to come and like how to react from that is something that I know that came from (laughs) athletics, a hundred percent. That makes a lot of sense. And then my second part of this question is what athletic skills are actually interfering with your role now, if that makes sense. Um, Wanting to get it right from the first go. Um, So like having that fear of failure because I've always been good at sports. And if my coach says, well, you did this, let's try this. I'll make it better. And then going back and just automatically being able to do it, um, you know, something that like I've definitely had to transition into like business of like when you try this or your first presentation may not knock it out of the park or, you know, learning something new because there are new skills that like I develop all the time in my role. I'm like, mm, I don't know how to do this. So having to ask for help is something that's very difficult for me. <laughs> well, I just had to ask for help today. And I was like, um, asking for help saying I don't know something or I can't do it. Um, is something that like, I'm not comfortable with. And then also missing a deadline. If you tell me you need something today by four o'clock, like I got you at three fifty, Um, because like, I'm not going to miss that deadline, even if I don't know how to do something. So just being okay with being like, Hey, I can't do it today, but you know, tomorrow or the next day I can have it to you by then. Um, so just those struggles of like time limits and stuff too. 
Yes, yes, because the real world, so to speak, does not necessarily operate within the structured system that athletes tend to operate within. Where it's like, if you have practice, if you are one minute late, there are going to be consequences. Whereas in the real world or even the professional world, there's there's a lot more flexibility that comes with that, depending, and also it depends on where you are geographically, what company, everything, department. I mean, all those things really, really change. And I am so glad you answer that question. And I'm, I know, I know now I've learned that I have to ask those questions because, you know, the one thing that I've, I've learned myself is that we develop as athletes develop all these skills. But I think the question that I've asked over the years is like, why aren't some of these athletic skills being transferred over? And also some of these skills that we acquire can actually really, really be detrimental to our progress and growth as human beings and also professionals. And when I mention that, is there anything that comes to mind? Um, I think, you know, for athletes, as much as we are teammates to people, we're all like selfish people. We want to score the most points. We want to run the fastest. Like, that is a, that is thinking of myself. Um, so just learning how to like function in a team environment and knowing that like I can go to, you know, her and ask her to show me this or ask her to walk me through this. But especially in track that that thought or that mindset is, you know, far gone. Once you're past college, like no one is helping one another to run faster if we are competitors. Um, so just Yes. Getting past that, like Kelly, you can ask someone for help and they will help you. This is, this is how it goes. Um, so just finding my voice in that aspect has been difficult. It's coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. When you talk about asking for help, that's a theme that's come up, maybe not necessarily early, but it's come up in your life, you know, getting help with regards to healing from your past traumas and seeking therapy. And that's something that you've been outspoken about in your blog or on your social media and everything. So it's, it's there. Why do you think whether it's your own personal experience or athletes in general, whoever it is, why do you think there is that issue of seeking help? We are prideful people. Athletes, like it just, it's a thing. Like we're very prideful. Um, so just getting out of our own way, really. And um, I think that it is a big deal when athletes do transition into, you know, some sort of business or a job. Um, I think a lot of us are concerned with how we show up or, or what we do because of people, be it, you know, teachers, professors, always thinking that like we had it the easy way. So we've just been given something. So I think there's a lot of perception when people look at athletes and then how we feel when we look back out. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you think about this path, this, this current experience in your position and like having to battle those feelings of imposter syndrome, which everybody athlete or non-athlete will experience at some point during their vocational path. How do you work through that? What, what's, what's helped you manage those feelings? Um, I was lucky when I came here, I found a couple of really good people that I look at as mentors, um, that I've been able to talk things through with. And they're like, like, no, they're always pushing that out of me of like, no, like that is not it. Um, so having really strong people around me, um, you know, my husband, your husband, um, some people that work at Wolverine have really helped me like work past that feeling of like, 
girl, like you are enough. Calm down. Like you're, you're doing too much. Reel it in, calm down and just do your job on an everyday level. And you're fine. So I think just really having people around me that could see, you know, like that I was doing things to myself for no reason or causing myself much more anxiety than I needed to have really brought me back off of ledges that I shouldn't have even been close to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned my, my husband, Ben. So he works, you two work together at Wolverine and he speaks so highly of you. Well, like when he, uh, after he met you and, and you guys had some time to develop the relationship, he was like, you got to interview Kelly. She's, she's amazing. And behind the scenes, whether or not this is like good or bad or appropriate, but the one thing in a, in a complimentary way he said is like, Kelly needs to just like be like, she's be less apologetic about who she is. And, and he might've said other words along with it, but I was like, he has said the same thing to me where he's like, why are you so humble? Like stop being so humble. And I'm curious about what, what your experience and path with, with that type of feedback is. Um, (laughs) he says this all the time. He's like, yes, with other words, like stop being humble. Let them know. What are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, but no, like I, I get it, but I have to definitely be a little bit more tactful with things. Um, but I do agree with him of, you know, the things that I'm really good at and I know like lean into it and don't be afraid to have that flex and be like, no, this is what I've experienced. This is what I know. This is, you know, what I'm going to do. So he's helped me tremendously um, of being there. And I think also being a sprinter at a distance company um, gave me a couple Mm -hmm. of like, hmm, they may, you know, only think that I know about sprints or they may only think that I know, like my knowledge is limited. Um, And he always tells me to like, stop talking to myself because that's not friendly and to just, you know, keep going. So I appreciate him and uh, he introduced me to someone else and I appreciate her for just, you know, helping me through like, you know, certain pitfalls. So I'm good. I'm much better now. I won't say like good, but much better. I, I think it's an ever evolving process. And like the, it's, it is a theme that I've noticed recently, maybe because I'm more cognizant of it, that I don't know if it's a gender thing um, oh. in the sense of, you do think it's it's a gender thing where females feel as though and due to societal pressure and all these like gender norms and everything that there's pressure to kind of quiet in silence where women have to apologize for their accomplishments. Absolutely. I feel like with women from an early age, we're taught to like be seen, not heard or, you know, how to be a good woman or humble like that. Just because I'm bragging on what I did doesn't mean that I'm not humble. I just did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's a societal like woman, you know, like, oh, you did that, but sh- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, do, it, do it gracefully with a smile on your face. When men can trash talk each other and talk about how great they are, women were not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. So where are you at this point in your career and the things that you're working on? Um, I feel like it's kind of weird. I feel like I'm just getting started on some things and then some things I'm like, I feel so seasoned uh, in. So like, I mean, I'm writing a book and we're almost done that. Um, So that is like my baby. That's what I've been working like night and day on. 
um, because I realized like to write a book, you have to go, like, you have to dedicate. You can't be like one foot in, one foot out. You have to be like, I'm writing a book. That's what I'm doing. And here's the steps to get there. Um, so writing a book and then, you know, chugging away at Saucony, trying to make like the culture that we have in the running world, try to make it better than it already is, which is great. And then, you know, impl- like put in my input on things that like I'm really passionate about. And I know of the running community and I know of minority communities um, because that's one thing that I, I do love about Sogni is, you know, they are, you know, wanting access for all. And how can we do this? How can we, you know, do it as a company? How can we affect change in society? So I do get that passion project of figuring that out as well. Hmm. If you had to sit down with your five or six year old self, what do you think you would tell her in terms of advice? I would tell her that it gets better. And I would tell her to like put herself first a lot of times and not other people. Um, because I did that a lot younger, like put others wants ahead of mine or their goals ahead of mine. Um, all the other guys are stupid. Don't worry about them. Um, (laughs) don't date any of them really. And, uh, I would tell her just to protect herself because the people that are around you may not protect you how you see fit. Um, so figure out how to protect yourself like younger and then just be kinder to yourself on the inside, like not so critical. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You, I mean, you've really had to be a protector for yourself and your family and and you're a protector for so many other people today with your inspiring story and and everything. And so uh, where can we find you and where can we expect this book to be coming out and when? Okay. You can find me all over social media. I love socials. I'm always, I reply to everybody. I love to talk. I love to connect. Um, so I'm on Instagram is at Kelly Wells Brinkley and it's Kelly with an I E. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, Snapchat, like everything, just look up Kelly Wells Brinkley. And you'll find me. Um, and so book, I would say, look for it in another about four months. Um, yeah, we've got, we're going to do, um, some stuff on uh, Amazon. Hopefully we'll be able to get into Barnes and Nobles. Like the team is really working on that as well. That's so great. Well, I'll have to kind of maybe have you back on to talk about that book process because I've heard from a lot of other people like writing a book is so hard, but sometimes it can be really therapeutic and, and just an an experience in itself. So, um, it was, it was both, it was Mm -hmm. a labor of love, wasn't it? It (laughs) Just knowing like you have to hammer this out, like Kelly focus, you got to hammer it out. You can't like no BSing. Um, and then getting to the point of like, I was afraid to write about some things. Um, one, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings um, because a lot of people that are involved in my story are still alive. So I didn't want to hurt people's feelings, but I also wanted to be authentic to myself. And then reliving certain things is not fun at all. Even like certain things that you bury deep down and then you start thinking like, oh my gosh, that did happen. And then now you've got to process that. So it was a lot of like all of that mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. Because putting, putting it down on paper really brings things to life. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been a big blogger, so I would imagine this fit really well 
with your natural inclination and talent. So um, I, I'm excited to to read the book and hear what comes of it. And just thank you for being unapologetic with with your book and your story about and sharing because uh, it's it's so inspirational and a lot of people need to hear it. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. Like, this is like a very big honor. I don't think you like, I'm very like no. a fangirling right now. No, the honor is mine because of the poster behind you right there. That's, <laughs> that's the unapologetic nature that you, you need to bring here. Now it it's been awesome uh, getting to know you, but Kelly, we wish you the best and, and stay in touch. I for sure will. A big thank you to Kelly for opening up and sharing her story, including what happened to her when she was 15 years old. Sexual assault and rape happens a lot more frequently than we think or know. Consider the fact that two-thirds of sexual assaults are committed by someone the victim knows. There's often this misconception that sexual assault or rape often occurs with a stranger, when in fact, most of them are perpetrated by a non-stranger, i.e. someone the victim knows, which includes people in their own family, like a caregiver or a family member, just like what Kelly experienced. And that is really, really scary. And the consequences are real. Survivors often report experiencing flashbacks and feelings of shame and isolation, shock, confusion, and guilt. And victims of rape or sexual assault are also at an increased risk for developing all sorts of mental health issues and disorders like depression and anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders, eating disorders. So if you or someone you know has experienced sexual assault, you need to know that you are not alone and there is help out there. You can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which offers 24-7 confidential support. Their number is 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org, which stands for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And another good website is mentalhealthamerica.org, which is where I pulled some of these statistics and information. So... I really hope you took something away from this episode. A big thank you to Kelly for sharing her amazing story. And thank you to you for opening your hearts and listening. The next chapter with Prim Saripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.